You are now listening to the May 22nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and prayers after God's own heart. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. We have been sharing the story of Josiah, the 16th king of Judah, since last week. You may recall how the high priest Hilkiah found the book of law while repairing the house of God, and then how Shaphan, the scribe, read it in the presence of the king Josiah. The words from the book pierced Josiah's heart. Upon hearing them, Josiah tore his clothes because he realized how he and his people had not been obedient to those words. He feared that the wrath of God would descend on them. He immediately sent Hilkiah and the servants to inquire of God. They went to a prophetess named Huldah, who was living close by in Jerusalem. Huldah told Josiah's messengers the inevitability of God's wrath pouring out on Judah because the people of Judah had deserted God and worshipped idols. However, because Josiah humbled himself in the presence of God, and because God saw how Josiah tore his clothes and mourned, she also told him that Josiah would not see during his time all the evil that God would bring on Judah and its inhabitants. After hearing the word of God through Huldah, Josiah immediately gathered all the people in Judah and Jerusalem to the house of God, and he read all the words in the book of the covenant which was found in the house of God. He then made a covenant before God with all the people. Here are the verses 31 and 32 in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. Moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Josiah made a covenant before God. To be true to the covenant, he then took action. He proceeded to remove all the abominations from throughout the land belonging to the sons of Israel. This was to fulfill the words from the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of God. 2 Kings chapter 23 verse 24 states, Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Josiah kept the word of God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. In describing Josiah, 
2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25, tells us that there was no king like him, before him or after him, who turned to the Lord in accordance with all the laws of Moses. Josiah served only God, and he commanded his people to serve God only as he did. And the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 33, that the people complied. They did not turn from following God throughout Josiah's lifetime. The covenant Josiah and the people of Judah made was to serve God and God only. Accordingly, reinstituting the festival of Passover weighed heavily on Josiah's mind. He wanted his people to remember how God delivered the people of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verses 1-19 to record in detail how Josiah prepared and celebrated the Passover. Josiah assigned priests and Levites their duties and ordered them to prepare the Passover as instructed by God through Moses. The priests and the Levites consecrated themselves as ordered by Josiah and prepared the Passover service according to the law. Here are the verses 16 to 19 in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. So all the service of the Lord was prepared on that day to celebrate the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. Thus the sons of Israel, who were present, celebrated the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days. There had not been celebrated a Passover like it in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. Nor had any of the kings of Israel celebrated such a Passover as Josiah did with the priests, the Levites, all Judah, and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the eighteenth year of Josiah's reign, this Passover was celebrated. The Bible tells us that the Passover service under the leadership of Josiah was the first of its kind that followed the word of God since the days of the prophet Samuel, whose celebration involved all Judah, Israel, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Josiah's grandfather Hezekiah also restored the Passover and observed it as we shared about four weeks ago. However, it was not in accordance with the law. Overall, the Bible describes Josiah's actions in a positive light. The records of Josiah in his later life are not as clear in the Bible. In particular, after he reformed Judah and Jerusalem and had led his people in the observance of the Passover, the Bible only tells us how he died, and the circumstances surrounding his death get a little confusing. They seem to contradict how we have come to understand Josiah as a king and the servant of the Lord. The Bible records as if his death occurred from not following God's word, which we will consider shortly. The point is that we are left to wonder how that could be, considering Josiah had been passionate about the reform of Judah and Jerusalem and made a covenant with his people before God to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments, his testimonies, and his statutes with all his heart, all his soul, and all his might. 
The details of Josiah's death are recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verses 20 to 27. Near the end of his reign, Babylon and Assyria were in a constant state of war. Assyria was losing battles to Babylon, so Necho, king of Egypt, came up to Carchemish on the Euphrates River to help Assyria fight against Babylon. But then, for reasons unknown, Josiah blocked the way of Necho, king of Egypt. It is not known why Josiah blocked the movement of Necho. The Bible only tells us that blocking Necho's way was a decision that went against God's instruction. Necho told Josiah, when Josiah blocked his way, that he was following the instructions of God. He told Josiah not to go against his own God and asked Josiah to move aside. He was on his way to fight against the nation that God had ordered him to strike. However, Josiah did not listen to that warning. He headed to the plain of Megiddo, disguised to engage Nico in a battle. He was then shot by an arrow and became badly wounded. Josiah was carried to Jerusalem and eventually died. The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 22, that the reason Josiah died in such a way was because he did not listen to Necho when Necho told him how he was carrying out the instructions from God. From putting all these things together, we come to a conclusion that yes, Josiah followed God's word, reformed how they served the Lord, and kept the laws that had been given to him. However, toward the end of his life, he was not able to recognize God's commands and died because he relied on his own thoughts and his own determination when facing the king of Egypt in battle. It makes us realize how difficult it is for a person to keep the faith alone. Because we are that weak, it makes us depend on God even more. It causes us to thank God again and again for how He sent us the Holy Spirit as promised us to guide us and to teach us. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus lives in us and we live in Him. We are able to live our lives as He leads us. We pray that we will not rely on ourselves, but rely on the Holy Spirit so that we can finish the race and complete our spiritual journey. This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week.
It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for things I've made. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. When the music fades, all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's worth that will bless your heart my God and I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship And it's all about you it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Beauty and Brokenness, Sexuality, Part 2. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. This is God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other person a sin commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you would help us in the next few minutes to hear and understand your word with open hearts, especially as your word is so different than what we hear around us in the world, and even different than the ways we are prone to think in each of our lives. We trust, O God, that you are supremely good, you are infinitely wise, and you are perfectly loving. So help us to hear your word as supremely good, infinitely wise, and perfectly loving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the conversation like it was yesterday. I was getting married, and the people who were closest to Heather and me had traveled into town for the wedding. The night before the wedding, I found myself driving one of these people back to the hotel where he was staying. I hadn't seen him in a while, and it was really good to catch up on a number of levels. And when he was about to get out of the car at his hotel, he turned to me and said, David, I have something to share with you. Okay, I said. And he replied, I want you to know that I'm gay. Silence immediately filled my seat in the car as I didn't know what to say. Thoughts swirled through my mind. I wasn't sure what to do with them. He said, I want you to know that I've had these desires for a long time, and now I'm choosing to act on them. In ways that I regret now, silence continued to fill my seat. Looking back, I wish I had said so many different things. I wished I had thanked him for his willingness to share with me. I wish I had assured him that this would not change my love for him. I wish I had asked him sincere questions to understand him better. How did he come to that conclusion? Who else had he shared this with? And how hard had those conversations been on him? How hard was this to share with me just now? What were the biggest ups and downs he'd experienced as a result of his desires and this decision? But unfortunately, I barely said a thing. He got out of the car. And though I told him it was really good to see him, our conversation didn't go any further. My thoughts, though, went a lot further. I found myself driving home on the eve of my wedding with a myriad of questions running through my mind. Why do I have sexual desire for a woman while this person close to me has sexual desire for a man? Did we learn these desires somewhere along the way? Or were we born with them? Did we choose this or did God make us this way? 
And why is it celebrated in everyone's eyes for me to fulfill my desires, while it's condemned in so many people's eyes for him to fulfill his? Can he love a man in the same way I love a woman? These questions led me down a path that went far beyond that night, as I've shared life with other friends and members in the church who are attracted to the same sex. And these close relationships in my life, combined with current trends in the culture, have, asked, have caused me to ask what light, if any, the gospel of Jesus Christ shines upon LGBTQ issues. And the more I've asked that question, the more I've seen that the gospel of Jesus Christ sheds light not just on issues of same-sex attraction or LGBTQ issues, but sheds light on every single person in our lives when it comes to our sexuality. So we looked last week at three foundational truths in God's Word that I want to recap here and then build on. So first and foremost, we saw that your body was created by God for His glory and for your earthly and eternal good. We saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, which we read just a second ago, that your body is created for God. And this is so foundational because every discussion of sexuality in our culture starts with a different starting point, a different foundation, a foundation of self. Your body is for yourself, the world says, the mantra being told to teenagers, young adults, any adult, any child is be true to yourself or live your truth. Be true to how you feel, what you think, regardless of what your biology says, regardless of what your parents say, regardless of what culture says. You will be happy and fulfilled when you are true to you. And we desperately need to ask the question, what if that foundation is not true? What if you are not at the center of the universe and everything does not revolve around you? What if God is at the center of the universe and everything revolves around God? And what if, therefore, the purpose of your body is not ultimately self-gratification, but God-glorification? What if your body, verse 13, your body is for the Lord? That foundation changes everything. Because all across our culture, people think, if only I have sexual freedom in this way or sexual expression in that way, then I will be happy. But it is not true. Sexual expression is good, but it is not God. It will never ultimately fulfill. Children, teenagers, young adults, any and every adult, don't buy the lie that if you act out this desire or make this change, then you will be happy. God alone can meet the deepest needs of your heart. 
And the good news is, he will. That's what 1 Corinthians 6.13 is saying. God is for your body. We talked about this last week. The one who formed you is for you. Again, this is so foundational. I think about even since last Sunday, I've heard from men, women, students who have questions about transgenderism and whether or not God's design for their bodies as male and female is actually good. Questions that are cultivated in a culture that is increasingly telling you that maybe you were born in the wrong body, that maybe God messed up when he made you in this way or that way, even as male or female. And I urge you, don't believe the lie. God loves you. God loves you and God has formed you. Your biological makeup is not a personal malfunction and your gender identity is not a social construction. No, your biological makeup and gender identity are supernatural inventions. God has created you for his glory and for your earthly and eternal good. We talked about that last week. If you missed last week, go back. I would encourage you and let that soak in there. The problem is, and we saw this last week, that we live in a broken world, which means that in this broken world, we all have broken bodies in different ways. Physical ways, sexual ways, with different desires. In ways that we have all sinned with our bodies. And many of us have been sinned against in our bodies. We talked about how like a piece of pottery, we have been beautifully and wonderfully formed and fashioned by God as clay in his hands. Yet just as clay breaks, we all have broken bodies in this broken world, which led to the third truth where we landed last week. Jesus gave his body to make your body new. The essence of the gospel is that Jesus came, God in the flesh, God in a body, to die on a cross for sin, to rise bodily, physically from the grave, so that everyone who trusts in Jesus can be redeemed by Jesus, made new, illustrated in how God puts our bodies back together and turns our brokenness into beauty by his blood. Bought with a price by his love, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says. And as we place our faith in Jesus, verse 11 says our bodies are washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just that, as if that wasn't enough, but by the Spirit of our God, when we trust in Jesus, we are filled. Look at this phrase in verse 19 again. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You realize the way God is talking about your body. 
For all who trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within your body. Talk about meaning and fullness and fulfillment. The Holy Spirit of God in your body. Picture the temple in the Old Testament, this ornate, beautiful building where the glory of God dwelled in a physical place. God is saying to all who trust in Jesus, that's your body. My glory, my spirit dwell in you. Like, feel this right where you're sitting for all who trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God is dwelling in your body. He's within you. Do not believe the lies of this world. Believe what God is saying in his word about your body. When you realize this, then the words right before verse 19 will make so much more sense. So now 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So once you realize how valuable your body is, how God has washed you and filled your body with the Holy Spirit for your good, for his glory, then yes, you want to run from anything that's not good for you and glorifying to him. The reason we have this command to flee is because we are all prone to question what God says about our bodies and we're prone to go against what God says our bodies are designed for. All of us are. We talked last week about how this looks different in different lives and the questions we ask and the desires we have and the temptations we experience. But the reality is we all experience them in this broken world. And ways that we talked about last week lead to inevitable harm. Quickly control and painfully devastate and ultimately eternally condemned, which is why God uses this strong word, flee. Like run away as fast as you can. So what is God and his love for us and his design and desire for our good What is God telling us to run away from as fast as we can? 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. And this command, like these four words, I'm convinced are four of the most countercultural words, one of the most countercultural commands in all of the Bible. Meaning, These words, this command, go so against the grain of everything our culture is shouting. And even the way that many of us, as followers of Jesus, are prone to think. Because here's what sexual immorality means. The word here in the original language of the New Testament is porneia. And it's a general term that refers to any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. We don't have time to do an exhaustive study of this word in the Bible right now. I would commend one of the resources we posted on that page called True Sexual Morality. If you really want to dive in deep, 
here, but in this negative command, God's saying, don't do this. Don't run out into this road. God is saying, flee any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Now again, let's think about this in light of what we just said. When God gives a negative command, he's always pointing us to something positive. So what's the positive that God points us to in his word? From the beginning of the Bible, the positive God points us to is for sexual activity is marriage between a man and a woman, a male and a female in a one flesh union. This is the second chapter in the Bible, really first and second chapter in the Bible. So there's a video on that resources page entitled God's Good Design for Sex, where I walk through in a few minutes just a holistic picture of how God has designed sexual activity, sexual thinking, desiring, acting to be experienced in the context of a committed covenant relationship between a man and a woman in marriage, in a one flesh union that's complementary and complex and intimate and fruitful and selfless and God glorifying and gospel displaying, how God has designed this union to display his love to the world. Think about it. God didn't have to make a man and a woman and then bring them together in a relationship called marriage. But this wasn't random. God wasn't just rolling some dice or drawing some straws or flipping a coin. God, from the very beginning, was painting a picture in marriage of how how Jesus would give his life for sinners and a husband laying down his life to love his wife. This is the good picture that God is pointing us to. So this is the yard where God has designed men and women to flourish sexually. Now, as I even say that, I want to pause there because I know many of you are single brothers and sisters of all ages, from younger to older, and we're going to look specifically at singleness in a couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians 7. It's no coincidence that comes right after this passage. But I just want to point out now that if you are single for your entire life, that does not mean you cannot flourish as a single man or a single woman. If that were true, then Jesus didn't flourish as a man because he was single. And neither did Luke or Titus or Lydia or Phoebe. Keep in mind that the guy who's writing 1 Corinthians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul, is single. So being married is not necessary for human flourishing. Yet the Bible clearly and consistently teaches that sexual activity is exclusively for marriage between a man and a woman to the point where, just to take this a step further, there's not one place in the Bible that celebrates sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Not one place. Instead, God clearly says over and over and over again, flee from any and all sexual thinking, desiring, looking, touching, speaking, acting outside of marriage between a man and a woman. One of the other books we recommend in the resources is The Whole in Our Holiness by a friend of mine named Kevin DeYoung. And he writes, the simplest way to understand porneia, so sexual immorality here in 1 Corinthians 6, is to think about the things that would make you furious and heartbroken if you found out someone was doing them with your husband or your wife. If someone shook your wife's hand, you would not be upset. If someone gave a casual side hug to your husband, it probably wouldn't bother you. A kiss on the cheek in some cultures might be appropriate. But, and then he lists specific ways someone might see or touch or 
do something with your spouse that would make you furious and heartbroken because, he says, these are all activities that are appropriate for a married couple but are inappropriate when practiced outside of the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage, which is why any sexual activity between those who are not married or between two men or between two women or between those married to other people, any sexual activity in these contexts is sin and can be included in the prohibitions against pornea, sexual immorality. We could walk through all kinds of specific places. We see this in the Bible where God gives specific commands to flee sexual prostitution, sexual violence, adultery, which the Bible defines as sex with anyone who's not your wife or husband, regardless of whether you are single or married, to flee homosexuality, homosexual activity, to flee pornography, to flee immodesty. So not just fleeing sexual desires for others outside of marriage, but God calls us not to provoke sexual desires in others outside of marriage through immodest dress, through provocative or flirtatious speech. God calls us to flee joking or entertaining ourselves with others' sexual immorality. Don't sit there in front of a screen, whether it's on your phone or on Netflix or in a movie theater, and watch other people engage in sexual activity. God says, run from it as fast as you can. Are you seeing now how countercultural this is? And how pervasive this is in every single one of our lives. Are are we getting the point? None of us is immune to this. None of us is immune to sexual temptation. And just because we're inclined to certain behaviors doesn't make those behaviors right and good. And we all know this. We all know this. Some some researchers say that infidelity may be in our genes. But we Oh, no, that doesn't mean a married man who has a desire for a woman who's not his wife must fulfill that desire in order to be happy or to be fully himself. No, the presence of a desire doesn't mean we act on that desire in order to be whole, in order to be fully ourselves. But do you see the way sexual immorality works in a broken world? It starts with a sexual desire. We want something which we then equate with sexual identity. We assume that what we want is what we are, and we define ourselves according to our desires, which means then that if I am to be who I fully am, then I must do this, which leads to sexual activity. We act on our desires. This is the way of the world, and we've already seen how foolish it is. Just because a married man has a desire for someone not his wife does not mean that in order to be fully himself, he must be unfaithful to his wife. To use another example, I trust is obvious to us. I shared a couple of weeks ago about a young girl named Malia, trafficked by men who want something, who become something, and who act in ways that are unthinkable. So God help us not just to see this in others' lives, but in our own lives. We all have sinful hearts that are prone to want our ways over God's word. And specifically here in 1 Corinthians 6, hearts that are prone to desire sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. 
And we live in a world that says, that's who you are. That's what it means to be a teenager. That's what it means to be male or female or transgender or gender neutral or straight or lesbian or gay or so many other identifications we've designed where we identify ourselves in all these different ways and convince ourselves that satisfaction and fulfillment will only be found in acting out, living according to these desires. Yet what we're actually living out is an age-old lie that's been around since Adam and Eve, summarized in Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seems right to a person, but in the end, it leads to death. There are so many ways that seem right to us that in the end lead to death. And the good news of God's word for you and me in this world is there is another way. There's another way to live. There's a way that leads to life. Life now and life forever. Jesus, God in a body, comes to this broken world and to every single one of us, no matter what our desires, questions, or struggles may be. And Jesus gives the same invitation to every single one of us. John chapter 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What a statement. Jesus uses a bodily desire, a desire even more fundamental than sexual desire, the desire for food that we all have, something we all need to flourish. And Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of all your desire. I am the one you need to flourish. Come to me and you will not be hungry. Believe in me, trust in me, and you will never, ever thirst. And it makes sense. Jesus, God in the flesh, the one who created your body in the first place, come to him, believe in him, trust in him. Don't go to this world. Don't trust what this world says. Don't trust yourself. Trust the one who made you. He loves you. He is for you. God is for you. God is for you. God is for you. And God has made a way for your soul and your body to be satisfied in him. Now, to be clear, that, that means saying no to desires in your body, in your flesh. Remember Jesus' initial words to anyone who would follow him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily, die to himself daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Oh, this is Jesus' invitation to every single one of us to find life in dying to ourselves and turning from our desires, not 
indulging all of them, turning from them to him. Jesus is beckoning all of us, single and married, male and female, whoever we are, with whatever desires we have to turn from ourselves and watch this, to find new identity in him. This is where Jesus totally turns the table. As we die to ourselves, we take up a cross daily, we find an entirely new identity, no longer defined by the sexual desires in our bodies, but an identity defined by the Savior who died for our bodies. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified, died to myself with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. He's my life. Jesus is my life. I'm his. That's who I am. I'm not fundamentally heterosexual or fundamentally homosexual or fundamentally anything else. I'm fundamentally his. And his life that I now live in this body, in the flesh, I live by faith, by trust in him because I know he loves me and he gave himself for me. I trust him. I trust his love for me. Do you see it? Jesus totally redeems and renews the way we think about ourselves, including our sexuality. One of the resources we have on our website is from Rosaria Butterfield, who once described herself as a lesbian professor at a large university who took delight in disparaging the Bible and all who believe it. Stupid, pointless, menacing, she said. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. She wrote some scathing editorials of Christians in a local newspaper. And a pastor and his wife reached out to her, invited her into their home week after week after week. And she saw their genuine love for her. She started reading the Bible and wrestling with the question, do I really want to understand sexuality from God's point of view, or do I just want to argue with him? One night she started praying, and she didn't stop, she said, until the morning. She wrote, when I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. When I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian, or has all this been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? This crisis of identity led her to what she describes as one ordinary day when she trusted in Jesus. She wrote, in this war of worldviews, Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess, a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. But the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. This testimony is not limited to lesbian professors. It's the same testimony that's now shared by that person close to me who I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, who since that day has decided to turn from those desires And though it hasn't been easy, not everything is easy now, he is thriving in his life and his relationship with Jesus. And I mean thriving. He's growing in Jesus. He's sharing the gospel. He's leading people to Jesus and the life that's found in him. And this is the same story that resounds across the lives of every single person 
prone to sexual sin, who's been drawn by the blood of Jesus Christ to gladly die to themselves in order to experience new life in him. To every single person who has discovered that the call to follow Jesus is ultimately not a call to unfulfilled desire. No, the call to follow Jesus is ultimately a call to fulfillment of our deepest desires and dying to ourselves and living in Jesus. By the way, this is why casual, comfortable, consumeristic, cultural Christianity will not cut it in our country. Just come to Jesus and everything will be smooth and easy for you. Imagine saying that to Rosaria Butterfield. A woman for whom following Jesus cost her everything. To see her identity differently was to unravel everything she knew and loved in this world. And this is the call of Jesus to every single one of us. And we must not dilute it in our day. Student, teenager, young adult, single, married, whoever you are, die to yourself, to your desires, and live in Jesus. Come to Jesus. Believe. Trust in Jesus. Believe. Trust that Jesus has all that you need, that he loves you, and that he and his word are worthy of your trust, even when that word goes completely against the grain of the world around us and even our desires within us. In this broken world, we all have broken bodies. We're all prone to question God's design of our bodies. And we're all tempted to sexual immorality in our bodies. And God is saying to us today, in love for us, flee. Flee. Don't flirt with sexual immorality. Don't reason with it. Don't rationalize it. Run from it as fast as you can. And as you flee from sexual immorality, flee to your ultimate identity. In this sea of cultural confusion, run from sexual immorality to the peaceful, calming our arms of the Savior who has bought you with his blood, who has filled you with his spirit, and who promises to fulfill your deepest desires forever and ever. Will you bow your heads with me? As you bow your head and close your eyes, I just I want to ask you a question before God. And I want to invite you just to contemplate it and to answer it between you and Him. Here's the question. Do you trust God with your body? Do you trust Him? That's the fundamental question. And some of you have never said that to God. And if that's the case, I want to invite you today to say to him for the first time, God, I trust you with my body. I trust you with my life. I invite you to believe today that Jesus died on the cross 
for you to save you from all your sin. To say to God, God, I have turned away from you, but today I'm turning back to you. I'm trusting in you, Jesus, to wash me of my sin. I'm trusting you to lead me as my Lord. This is what it means to become a follower of Jesus. I invite many of you to do that today. And then for every follower of Jesus, as you trust him enough to turn from desires that you may have, questions, and to bring those before him. Say, God, help me to know that he loves you. He's for you. He's bought you with a price. He's put a spirit in you to help you. And so we pray, God, help us all in every single one of our lives to flee from sexual immorality, to flee to you, to you, to your word, to your design for us. God, amidst all our questions and all the confusion around us that affects us, God, amidst all the desires we have that go against what we have just seen in your word, we pray you would help us to trust you, to die to ourselves and to experience life in you. God, I pray, John 6, 35, over every single person coming to you, believing in you, who has believed in you, may they not hunger, may they never thirst, may they find fulfillment of their deepest desires in you. And help us to live out of the overflow of that fulfillment dying to ourselves daily and experiencing your life in us according to your good commands to us. God, we say together, we trust you and we pray, help us to trust you more and more and more and more. Help us to trust you, to obey you, and to experience your good design for our bodies. In Jesus' name we pray, the name of the one who bought us with a price. In his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Your grace is more Grace 
71% of teens have admitted to hiding what they do online from their parents. This is just one of the many, many reasons I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with covenant eyes. I've been using it for years, and if you do not have protection on all of your uh, computers and cell phones and tablets, let me encourage you. Visit CovenantEyes.com today. Receive a 30-day free trial when you use my name. Dustin Daniels with no spaces in that promo box. The following program is called Prayers After God's Own Heart. Hello, everyone. It's Terry from Prayers After God's Own Heart. From last week on Prayers After God's Own Heart, we began to share about fasting. We often misunderstand the meaning of fasting. We may have thought that fasting is when we fast over an urgent prayer, believing that God will answer that prayer more quickly. The wrong thought behind our misunderstanding is that God will listen to our prayers out of pity because of our fasting. However, like we shared before, the wrong thought of trying to get what we want from God by fasting and begging comes from not really understanding how God responds to our prayers. Just because we beg doesn't mean that God will change His mind and do things for us that He otherwise would not do. Furthermore, 
Trying to convince God to give us what we want by fasting is not what someone after God's own heart should do. Therefore, last week we looked at fasting in the Bible and learned when and with what reason the people fasted. In Judges, the people acknowledged their wrongdoing and prayed while fasting to seek God's will. In 1 Samuel, the people regretted their wrongdoing and got rid of all the idols. Through fasting, they made a resolution to only serve God. In facing battle, Jehoshaphat humbly confessed that he didn't have the ability to go into battle and prayed while fasting for God to help him. After ending the life of captivity in Babylon, Ezra humbly lowered himself and proclaimed a fast for God to protect the people on the road returning to the Jewish nation. These were not prayers asking God to listen to what they wanted. They regretted their wrongdoing and expressed how they depended not on their own strength, but the Lord's strength. This humble expression of fasting helped them focus on God. That is the kind of fasting that appeared in the Bible. This kind of fasting which God is pleased with is shown in detail in Isaiah chapter 58. What kind of fasting and prayer can help us hear from God? I want us to think about this today through Isaiah chapter 58. The Israelites poured out their complaint before God. Their complaint was why God was not looking and listening to their fasting. Chapter 58 verse 3 says, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? This is how they complained. How did God answer their complaint? The latter part of verse 3 through verse 5 shows how God answered their complaint. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? As we have already shared, the reason for fasting is for us to confess our sins and repent or humbly lower ourselves by admitting that we can't overcome certain situations with our own ability. Let's think about how a person who is contrite about being a sinner looks like. A person who fasts and realizes he is a sinner is contrite and would probably not have an appetite. He would deeply realize his wrongdoing and regret it with a heavy heart. He probably would not even think of wanting to eat. Therefore, he would naturally fast. It's because the weight of sin would be harder to endure than not eating. However, the Israelites at that time entertained themselves while fasting. They did something fun. From this, we could see that they were far from having tears of repentance for their sins. They did not sadly weep before God and ask for the weight of sin to be removed. Also, they exploited their workers. They tried to look righteous and holy by fasting, but they gave their workers all kinds of painful tasks and exploited them. They didn't show grace. Fasting while having greed for wealth and not having consideration for others has no meaning to God. Some of them fought and struck each other with fists while fasting before God. This also was far from being humble and looking contrite as a sinner. 
God clearly said he does not hear such prayers while fasting, which is done out of formality. If so, what kind of fasting will God be pleased with and accept? God tells us directly in Isaiah chapter 58 verses 6 and 7. Should we read it together? Is not this kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? What kind of fasting will God accept? It is not merely praying with a devout heart and not eating. In contrast, we have to move. God says we must help, loosen, and comfort those who are hurt, in need, and oppressed. We must share our food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter and fill their need. We must clothe those who don't have clothes and not turn away from relatives who are in need but help them. Doing this while fasting is the fasting God is pleased with. When most of us fast, we mostly have an urgent prayer topic. We might have a severe illness or be placed in a difficult situation or have something that needs to be solved quickly. During this time, we pray while fasting for God to quickly answer our prayers. God says when we have such a purpose for praying, we must first help those who are in the same circumstance as us. We must share our food, clothes, and shelter with others. When we do this, God promises to do something for us. This is verses 8 through 11. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and He will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. When we pray while fasting after God's own heart, God promises to shine His light of grace upon us like the light of dawn. Our pain will heal quickly and God will protect us from all situations. When we cry to the Lord for help, He promises to answer, Here am I. How about you? Wouldn't you like to begin fasting in a way that receives all of God's promises? It's not a fasting done for our own advantage by forcing an answer from God. When we first look after those who are in the same difficult situation as we are and show grace, then God will answer our prayers. I hope we could give such prayers. We'll end prayers after God's own heart.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.